we're in Ezekiel 43. We're coming to the end of the book. We have we have a few more chapters. I think there are 48 chapters in Ezekiel. And I haven't, if, if there's a an Old Testament series that you would like me to preach through a book, just let me know. I don't know whether I'll do it or not. I may have already done it. Let me know because my game plan is when we get to the end of Ezekiel, I'm not going to jump up jump into another series right away. What I'll do, my intention at least, everything can change, is um, eight weeks of Psalms. So when in doubt, I kind of have the Martin Luther, I, when in doubt, go to the Psalms. So I live in the Psalms a lot, and so my intention is to do two months of Psalms in the evening, but we have five more chapters, which I don't know what it will take us. Okay, Ezekiel 43... We're going to pick up the second half. We looked at 1 through 12 last week and then 13 through 27. This is the holy word of God. And these are the measurements of the altar by cubits, the cubit being a cubit and a handbreadth. The base shall be a cubit and width of a cubit, its border on its edge round about one span, and shall be the height of the base of the altar. From the base of the ground to the lower edge shall be two cubits and a width one cubit. From the smaller ledge to the larger ledge shall be four cubits, and a width one cubit. The altar hearth shall be four cubits. From the altar hearth shall extend upward four horns. Now the altar hearth shall be twelve cubits long by twelve cubits wide, square on all its four sides. The ledge shall be fourteen cubits long by fourteen wide in its four sides. The border around it shall be a half cubit. Its base shall be a cubit round it. Its steps shall face east. And he said to me, Son of man, Thus says the Lord God, these are the statutes for the altar on the day it is burnt, built, to offer burnt offerings on it, to sprinkle blood on it. You shall give to the Levitical priests who are from the offspring of Zadok, who draw near to me, to minister to me, declares the Lord God, a young bull for a sin offering. You shall take some of its blood and put it on the four corners, take the four corners of the ledge and on the border round about. Thus you shall cleanse it and make atonement for it. Shall also take the bull for the sin offering, and it shall be burned in the appointed place of the house outside the sanctuary. On the second day, you shall offer a male goat without blemish for a sin offering. They shall cleanse the altar as they cleanse it with a bull. When you finish cleansing it, you shall present a young bull without blemish, a ram without blemish from the flock. You shall present them before the Lord, and the priests shall throw salt on them, and they shall offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. For seven days, you shall prepare daily a goat for a sin offering. And a young bull and a ram from the flock without blemish shall be prepared. For seven days they shall make atonement for the altar and purify it, so they shall consecrate it. Which they have, when they have completed the days, it shall be that on the eighth day and onward, the priest shall offer your burnt offerings on the altar and your peace offerings, and I will accept you, declares the Lord God. Amen. Let's pray. Where would we be, Lord Jesus Christ, without the blood? would still be squirming in our sin and under your wrath. Almighty God, give me, um, guide me, thou my great Jehovah, that I would properly preach this sermon, that the sermon would be according to your word, and all of us, Lord, would grow um, deeper in our appreciation of you, Jesus Christ, you who are the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. We long to see you face to face, Jesus Christ. Even so, come quickly. Amen. Remember that um, portion of um, of our secondary standard. It's kind of my interpretive grid. 
how I understand passages like this. So when you, if you're thinking, okay, we've got a bunch of cubits here and a few more cubits there, we're measuring this and measuring that, how are we going to get Christ out of here? Uh, I think I think I can. So um, I, I want to show my principle of understanding. It's not anything unique. It's not anything new. Saint Augustine said uh, the New Testament is in the old and seed form. In the old, in the New Testament, it, it's the old and in full bloom. So when we we have come to the New Testament, we see Christ crucified and Christ risen perfectly in substance. All of that was fore, forecasted and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. When you look at the very first preaching of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, and the seed of the woman will crush the head of the, of the, of, of the, um, the serpent. That's Christ. It's the first preaching of the gospel in, in shadowy form, in, in, in seed form. And as you go through the Bible, you'll see that um, Abraham believed the gospel. We, David believed the gospel, Psalm 16. Uh, Moses preached the gospel. And wh- where did they understand the gospel? They understood the gospel in all of these types, in the temple, in the temple furniture, in the feast day, in the priesthood, in the sacrifices, all of these things. And so I'll, I'll attempt to unpack kind of what we find, especially the, the main doctrine that you're looking at when you consider the doctrine of the altar is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement for sin. That's what's being taught. Substitutionary atonement for sin. That we have sinned and some other victim must die. In the case of the Old Testament, it's the victim, the oblation, the sacrifice is an animal. That animal is typological. It can't take away, uh, ultimately, the sins from, from the worshiper, but it's pointing forward to the one I just referenced, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I promise I'm not play, playing fast and loose. The book of Hebrews exegetes the book of Leviticus, which when we're looking at these at this uh, the altar with its with its um, in, inside of the temple, that's part of the old ceremonial law. The ceremonial law is depicting in a shadowy way the person, the work of Jesus Christ. That's generally the, the track that I'll take um, in this. But let me see if I can make a connection between what we're looking at here with um, the altar and then the consecration of the altar to the previous things that we've looked at, because it will help. So when we come to what this this new Altars, I would call it a, a visional altar, an eschatological altar. Remember in <clears throat> chapter 40, there were two things in chapter 40 that we looked at. We looked at the new Jerusalem, and then we looked at within the new city, the new Jerusalem, we looked at the brand new temple. And I don't think he's talking about the second temple that was built under Zerubbabel because I, the book of Revelation says that it's something different. So you have... The New Jerusalem, which is the city of peace, the one who dwell, who reigns over the city of peace is the Prince of Peace, which is Jesus Christ. The temple in the midst of that. when We, we need a little bit of the context of the Old Testament to understand um, what we're looking at in an Old Testament passage. What, what Jerusalem was the epicenter for the Jews, and the temple was the, the center for religious worship for the Jews. And in there was the Holy of Holies, and on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go one time a, a, a year. The high priest would go. You would have the Ark of the Covenant. In the Ark of the Covenant would be the scroll of the law. Over the, over the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat, and blood would be shed. And that blood is signifying the blood of the Lamb, who makes satisfaction for our sins, for the breach of the law, thus atoning 
What is the Hebrew word kippur? Covering the sins of, of God's people so we could have reconciliation. The very end, the, the last verse that we read, it said, and I will accept you. It's the same principle. It's repeated over and over and over again. We'll talk about the scapegoats. It's the same kind of principle. We sin and another pays for what we deserve, which is wrath. And then therefore, God will accept us. That's what we're considering when we consider the business of um, the altar. Let me, I'm arguing, and you'll see that I'm arguing, that this has to be understood spiritually. And not all Christians, there are, I was one of the, I was a dispensationalist for a while, so we thought other things about this particular temple and its uh, furniture and so on. But let me read to you from the book of Revelation that shows us that we're on the right track to understand this spiritually speaking. Um, Let's first consider the business of the New Jerusalem. Will it be renovated Palestine? Will it be just a renovated patch of dirt? I I don't think so. Well, I actually know so. Revelation 21. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride. That's significant. So it's the bride of Christ is also going to be called the New Jerusalem. They're one and the same. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. That's the church. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. Remember when we were in chapter 40, the new Jerusalem is built on a high mountain. The existing Jerusalem is at 2,500 feet. That's half a mile. That's not high. So this is, this is an eschatological. This is an end times visional holy city. Having showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God. And that was the last chapter. We looked at the glory of God filling the temple of God. All of this is pointing forward to Jesus Christ purchases his people, the new Jerusalem. Jesus Christ purchases his people. We are the temple of the living God. The apostle Peter says we're being built up as a living temple. And then in the first half of this chapter, God says, I will come and I will dwell with my people and my glory will fill with my people, fill with my people. And so, God is telling us, telling these people, that he will dwell in this new city and he will dwell in this new um, temple. When we, think of, when we think of life and death, how we define life and death, uh, I believe that life and death is ultimately de- defined in reference to God. It's not just the cessation of this. I'm 58. I've, I've witnessed a number of people um, leave this world and go into the next world, the most recent being my mother. I watched her breathe her very last breath last year. And, and so when we think of death, it's not merely the husk that's left behind. Our death has to be seen in relationship to God. And what do I mean by that? Before Adam and Eve fell, they, they walked with the Lord in the cool of the day. And, and they had the favorable presence of God. God loved them and they loved God. That's life. That is life. And death is the absence of that. It's the absence of the friendly presence of God. So it's not merely the cessation of this. So when this goes away, that's not death ultimately. The second death is eternal, unfriendly, offended presence of God. That's hell. That's death. So death is being away from the friendly presence of God. That's why people who are not Christians, they're not born again, they're, they're walking dead men, spiritually speaking, and they're just waiting the second death. And then we, when we consider life, Even when we're at our sickest point, even when we die, that's why Jesus Christ says, even when you die, you live, because you're in in connection with me. We're in union and friendship 
with the living God of heaven and earth. So life is to have the friendly presence of God and death is to have the offended presence of God. And so now God is telling his people, I will dwell with you. I want you to think of that. All, the, the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement strikes modern man, I would argue even modern Christians as wrong. But the notion of God saying, and I'm going to live with you, which, which is what this altar will ultimately represent, how God, why God can live with us. We don't think we're all that bad. Most of us are, are more offended with our neighbor's sins, most of us. Some of us have, had grown, have grown children. I have grown children. Sometimes, not everybody in the room, maybe hypothetically, people outside of the room, I don't want to get too personal. If you have grown children, sometimes they grow up, they get to be like 20 to like 30, and then they write you a 30-page letter and tell you what a lousy job you've done, hypothetically. And so you look at this and the mother cries and then the father gnashes teeth and wants to throw the letter down. So, so we, we, we're much more astute and eagle-eyed at looking at the sins of other people. Are we not? Are we not? And we're super offended by their sins. We don't think it's amazing that the God of heaven and earth says, I will live with you. Even as Christians, we think, what's the big deal? You know, I, I fib every once in a while. The Bible says in the book of Habakkuk, God's eyes are too what? Too pure to look upon sin. I don't know if you've ever done this. I do this. I'm a strange person. I pray through the Ten Commandments. I broke that one. 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 God's eyes are too pure to look upon sin with favor. How is it possible that a holy God would live with people who were conceived and lived in sin, who still sin? As believers, we still sin. How is this possible? When we look at the altar, that's how it's possible. We have the sacrificial animal, which is depicting the Lord Jesus Christ. He pays for what we owe, even as believers now. Even as believers now, the Lord Jesus Christ walks among the lampstands of his church. Were it not for the oblation of Jesus Christ, we would all go to hell. That's where we'd all go. And it, it, do we not still sin against God in thought, word, and deed every day? Every day. So this business of God saying, I will dwell with you, is a stunner. And I want you to think of I want you to think of where the people are that are hearing this. Where are they? Where are the people at physically that are hearing this particular sermon? They're in Babylonian captivity. They're Jews. Why are they in Babylonian captivity? For living like Gentiles. And God killed a whole lot of them. And then he kept a certain number alive and said, I'm going to bring you back, not because you're good, because I'm good. And I will dwell with you, not because you're good, because I'm good. And how will it happen? Will it happen because the people work off their sin debt? No, it's not going to happen by people working on their, off their sin debt. It's going to happen because of the altar. The wages of sin is what? Is death is the sacrificial animal. So that's what the altar and then the consecration of the altar teach. How God can, holy God can dwell with the likes of us. Is that true? So we are considered holy in Christ and God is progressively making holy us holy in our sanctification. But it is only because of the grace of God found in the Christ of God as that sacrificial lamb. So God says, I'm going to dwell with my people. And... It's meant to um, 
to humble us. Now, I want to read a couple other passages from the book of Revelation that tell us that we're looking at this rightly to be spiritually understanding it. Revelation 21. The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. Remember, this is the last sermon where God says, my holy glory will dwell with you. We're not going to need a sun or a moon, anything to shine in the eternal state. For the glory of God has illumined it, and the lamp is the lamb. So we know we're on the right track when we're seeing this with spiritual lenses. There will no longer be a curse, and the throne of God and the lamb of God will be in it. His bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night. They'll not have a need of a light or lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. That's verses 1 through 12. That's verses 1 through 12. God says, my glory is going to dwell among my people. And what we're looking at with what we read is the reason God's glory can dwell among his people because as we're arguing, the business of the altar. Now, altar in Hebrew it's, it's, I'll butcher it. My, I know baby Hebrew. I know enough to look at a lexicon. It's Mizbeha, something like that. And it literally means the place of slaughter or the place of cutting up or chopping up. So the altar is called by what actually occurs on the altar. And let me just say as an aside, um, and this, it, it, it's not insignificant, but it's not the main teaching of the passage. Every once in a while, we as Christian people will meet vegans or vegetarians. I'm not picking on on you. It's not good to eat red meat every single day. You'll be seeing your cardiologist, I guarantee you. So it might be better to to be careful with your diet and eat more, maybe a little chicken and some veggies and so on. But every once in a while, you'll meet someone who'll say, well, you shouldn't eat animals and you shouldn't kill animals because initially in the Garden of Eden, you weren't eating animals. And that's true in, in, in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. But after the fall, Genesis 9, God told Noah and, and eat the animals. But I, I just want to mention something. Every once in a while, you meet a Christian who argues we shouldn't really kill animals. I'm just going to say, beloved, that what we're looking at is a piece of furniture in the ceremonial law. It was God Almighty who cannot lie, who cannot err, that told the people of God, you see all those animals? I want you to sacrifice how many of them? Millions and millions and millions and millions of animals. Now, lest a person cry foul, remember we said we're sinners. No human being can require anything that's holier than God. No human being is holier than God. So if God says... I want those animals to typify what I'm going to do with my son, and I want you to to kill them. Is it right? If we were to witness this, if we were, I grew up um, off the ocean and fishing and killing fish and killing crabs and eating and all of that business. And some of you all have grown up hunting, and some of you have gone to a slaughterhouse. Um, What's it like? What's it like? You ever watch an, a, a, a deer being gutted or something like that? Or what, what's it look like? And what's it smell like? See, sometimes Christians think, I used to be one of them, boy, I couldn't, I, I would really want to be back there. Wouldn't that be neat? No, I don't think it would be neat. 
you would have hip waders on. And I think it would stink to high heavens. And so if we came here and actually witnessed this working altar, the place of slaughter, we would cover our nose, maybe even gag. Why did God want that business? For what I said earlier, we're not offended by, by sin. Do fish know they're wet? No, because they're swimming in water. When you talk to the sinner, we're not as, as I mentioned, we're offended at the next guy, but we're not offended, like offended the way that God is offended with sin. We just are not. And God says, this is what I think of sin. Every sin. We say as a catechism, what doth every sin deserve? Do you know the answer? What doth every sin deserve? Every sin deserves the curse and the wrath of Almighty God, both in this life and that which is to come. I can say that. Do I believe it? One thought where I'm not loving my wife as Christ loves the church. Sin. What does that sin deserve? The wrath and the curse of God, both in this life and that which is to come. That's why we have the altar. That's why. And so when you look at this, death upon death upon death upon death upon death, many of us can quote that Bible passage, and the wages of sin is death. That's the justice. So the altar teaches a number of things. In substitutionary atonement, which is what Christ is, is you see two things. You see the holiness of God related to the justice of God, that the sinner must die. And then at this very same time, as you see justice, you see grace and mercy. It's where the law of God is being satisfied and the gospel of God is being presented. When you look at the cross, that's where the Puritans would say justice and and mercy kiss or they meet. That's the altar. The wages of sin is death. Look at the animal. But who's providing the animal? God. God. God gives what he requires. So you you see the justice of God. You see the holiness of God. You see the sinfulness of man. But when you see this, it speaks of the mercy of God. What is mercy? What is mercy? Define mercy. When you're looking at the altar, the burnt sacrifices, all of these things, we're looking at mercy manifested. What is mercy? Mercy is kindness, pity, compassion, love on someone that does not deserve it. It's mercy is is love or compassion being extended to the guilty one. So sometimes people think like this, well, I would give you mercy if you deserved it. No, that's a law term. Mercy is a grace term. The law has no power to, to seek and to save. It can only command and damn. And so when we think mercy, it's you're guilty. They have, God has the glossy photos. He, he has the audio. He has the video. And it's the kindness of God and the forgiveness of God upon the guilty. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And that's what we're looking at in, in, in the altar. And that's what all of those bowls and the blood. There's a phrase in the Bible, there's no, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Right? Because we don't treat God as holy. This is why professing Christians cat around like I used to cat around. Or they drink boatloads of liquor like I used to drink boatloads of liquor. Or they curse like sailors like I used to curse like a sailor. And they're professing Christians. Why? They don't believe the altar. They don't believe the holiness of God. They don't believe the wage of every sin is death. They don't believe it. And so when you talk to them about Christ, what do they think? Oh, that's nice. Are we going out for Chinese food after church? That's nice. (laughs) 
If you believed that you deserved what these sacrificial animals got, and someone came in your place, what would you do? I hear it all the time when people get sick near to death. God save my son. God save my wife. God's, I'll do anything. Oh, God, I'll devote myself to you. Oh, please, God. And then what happens in a week and a half when they're healthy? We would give anything, we think. So that's what this is teaching. It's a place of slaughter. Um, there are a number of altars, and maybe I can touch on some of the altars that we find in the Bible, and they all are instructive for us. There's a post-diluvial um, altar, post-flood altar. The first time we see an altar in the Bible is that I referenced is Genesis chapter 9. You remember it? God looks out in Genesis chapter 6, and he sees that, that um, it's actually called Hamas, uh, which is evil or wickedness or violence. Violence has covered the land. And God said, I'm sorry that I made man. And then what did he do from Genesis? I said, I'm going to bring a flood. But he said, there's one man that's a recipient of grace in his family. It's a man in a seven-person, his seven-person family. So what is it? Eight people on a boat. Sometimes people think, well, God has to treat everyone, even Stephen. If God, God can do what he wants. If God gave everyone what we deserve, no one's going to heaven. And when God gives one person justice and another person mercy, that's God's business. When you look at Genesis, the whole world got justice and one family got grace. That's particular redemption. That's limited atonement. I know people think, well, you're a Calvinist. I am a Calvinist. The Bible teaches it. He saved one family out of the whole earth. And then after he went through the flood, the first time we have an altar is in Genesis chapter 9. And, and remember, God told Noah, take two by two, but then take enough animals for sacrifice. And, and God made a rainbow shine over the earth and said, I'm never going to kill and destroy the, the earth by flood again. This is a sign of the covenant. I think it's a sign of the covenant of grace. I know um, uh, Abraham Kuyper thought it was a different kind of covenant, but I think he's wrong. What's over the head of the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation? A rainbow. And, and God tells, God shows him essentially the covenant sign of the covenant of grace. And the next thing that Noah does is he makes an altar and he worships God for his grace. That's the post flood diluvial altar and then we see also in the bible you see a number of other altars in um in scripture you see um bethel bethel most of us know that term abraham makes a number a couple of altars and then the the patriarchs so the patriarchal altars abraham isaac and jacob but we think of abraham abraham makes an altar at bethel bethel is what it's teaching this the house of god it's where God dwells in a reconciled sense with his people. And Abraham does the very same thing. He makes an altar and he worships God. How can unholy man worship? Through the altar, through the sacrifice, through the blood. And then the other altars, which are more specifically related to this, I will call the, the priestly altars that we see being built in the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle went with the people of God while they were in the wilderness. When they came into the the, the promised land, the tabernacle went away, and it was the temple. And then with those, with those prescribed altars, either in the tabernacle or the temple, who was working these things? We see in the second half of our passage that these 
you have the altar in the first half of the passage, and then you have the consecration of the altar and the use of the altar in the second half. God has a prescribed piece of furniture. It's in a prescribed building. He has prescribed ministers offering prescribed sacrifices. What does that teach us? What does it teach us? Prescribed by meaning God is the one who says, the temple is going to be built like this. Only these people can touch my holy things, and it has to be a spotless this, and then it has to die. God plans it. It's God thought out and God wrought. That's the sovereignty of God in salvation. No one was with God in helping God in creation, and no one helps God in salvation. Are we active in our conversion? Yes, we're active in our conversion, but we're passive in our regeneration. God makes us alive, and we say, Thou, Son of David, have mercy. God does it. It's all a gift. So when we're looking at this, God, this is the mind of God. Sometimes even well-meaning Christians think, well, if we could tweak something here or there, there. If we could tweak something in, in, in God's religion, what would we do with it? We'd destroy it. Natural man doesn't come up with a cross. Natural man doesn't come up with this. That the second person of the Godhead will take human form and die for the sins of his people and rise again for their justification? We, we would never come up with this. The religion of man is the religion of Islam. You either do what I want or I'll cut your head off. That's man. That's not the religion of God. This is the religion of God. I am a holy God and you're an unholy sinner and you must die, but I'm a loving God. And I'll provide my son as the sacrifice and I will accept you. That's the gospel. So we have the priestly altars and the tabernacle and the temple and, and, and so on. This particular, when we come to this particular time frame, one of the reasons why this is so stunning, these are the people who are in Babylonian captivity for 70 years, as I say, for living like heathens. Um, they're professing people of God and they're living like Gentiles. There's a place that Peter says, judgment begins with the household of God first. We believe that any breach of the law is sin, inward, outward, and that we aggravate our sin. We make it more ugly or more heinous by, in four ways, by the person doing the offending, by the person being offended, by the type of offense, and by the time of the offense. And so, in other words, if an unbeliever um, steals a car, that's a sin, and it's an offense to God. If a believer steals a car, that's an aggravation of his sin. If a minister steals a car, that's an aggravation of his sin. So we tend to think, well, those bad unbelievers, boy, God is really mad with those unbelievers who are living like unbelievers. Don't ever be stunned when an unbeliever acts like an unbeliever. God is offended when professing believers act like unbelievers. And so when God says, I'm going to be with you again, and I'm going to give you a new temple, and I'm going to give you all the new furniture, the, the other temple, the first temple, they saw the first altar being broken up and taken away by the Babylonian army into Babylonian captivity. It's gone. It is utterly gone. And God told, told the people of God in the book of Jeremiah, I'm doing this because you're putting your hope and your trust in the temple and the sacrifices and all these things, but they're not bringing you to me. So you're saying the right things, but your heart is far away. And actually God can do something that we can't do. He can look at the heart. So God takes them away. After the Babylonian captivity, the temple and, and the altar are re-erected, but it's not this one. So I'm arguing that this is an eschatological or visional 
um, uh, temple and visual, visual um, altar as well. So we have a God-prescribed atonement, a God-provided for atonement. And, and notice he says <clears throat> about the business of the cubits. The only thing I want to point out is that this particular altar is about 15 feet high. And it has a set of stairs that are going up on the east. And so the priest is going to be facing west. There are a few things just taught principally or symbolically by this business. In order to come up and be reconciled to God, you have to come up and be rec- you have to go up. God is calling the eyes of his people and the thoughts of his people up. It's not insignificant that when we say heaven, we, we say up. God is omnipresent, but somehow God in heaven, heaven it is, is his throne, earth is his footstool. God is high, he is above, he is transcendent, he's other, and we are beneath him. And God is calling our thoughts to look up away from the earth and look to him. And then the business with the, the stairs going up on the east side, the priest then to make sacrifice would have to face uh, the west, not looking at the east. And this is significant because the pagans of this particular time oftentimes would make their oblations or their sacrifice looking east. What rises in the east? Sun. Does the sun rise in the east, I think? Right? Sets in the west. So one time I was watching a BBC documentary and it was on Peru or something. And I'm watching and in the documentary the sun was rising on these beautiful mountains and all of the porters got down and worshipped the rising sun. So not only does God want people to worship him by lifting our thoughts, by lifting our sacrifice up to him, he, he wants the sacrificer, the priest, to be looking away from the sun. He would have had to face the west to make the sacrifice, meaning that the religion of God's people is not to imitate the religion of the heathens. This is the thing that got the people of God into such a jam. You remember they were in in, um, Egyptian captivity for 430 years. And when they get out of Egyptian captivity and Moses is up on the mountain, what were the people of God doing? They said, make us a, a golden calf. Where did they learn that? Where did they learn that? From the pagans. And God is saying to his people, I will not be worshipped like the pagans. This is, the first, this is the first half of the moral law. No other gods. Don't worship me. Second commandment. Like a pagan, I will be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And so sometimes Christians think, well, couldn't I co-opt this and couldn't I do this? Beloved, I've seen some religious movements, so-called Christian movements, where the people are rolling around and barking like dogs and yipping. and It's demonic to me. Our God is an orderly God. This is not Christian at all. This is heathen. And God is an orderly God. God prescribes his worship. You live like a heathen, you're going to die like a heathen. God does not accept heathen worship. And that's what he's teaching. So God is high. God is lifted up. We're not to worship him. And he is above man. And then the things that we've been seeing, you see in Ezekiel uh, 43, you shall give the Levitical priests who are from the offspring of Zadok who draw near to me to minister to me. And you shall take the bowl and pour some of its blood I've been here 21 years. I've been a born-again Christian since I was 26. I'm 58. And I started reading the Bible for the first time at 26 years old. 
and an older Presbyterian minister gave me the Bible. And he said, what I want you to do is read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just do those over and over again. And, and I learned something about ministers and their authority that, that came back to inform me. So when the minister, the man of God, who sh- he's the dominee, he has all the respect, and he says, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he said, don't start with Genesis, Leviticus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so what did I do? I started with Genesis and Leviticus and so on. I did the exact opposite of what he told me. And by the time I got to the book of Leviticus, with all of the priests and all of the sprinkling of all of the blood, what did I say? What in the world is this? And I went to him and I said, what in the world is this? And back home I'm called Jack. My name is John, but I'm called Jack. He said, Jack, I told you. I said, I know, but I wanted to start from the front of the book. If you don't understand the gospel, if you don't understand Christ in the substance, the Old Testament, you, you will not. This is why the unbeliever, when they, come, they start with the Old Testament, they just start mocking it to the nth degree. If we can understand, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and then we go back and see it in type and shadow, we say, I understand. I just referenced. I referenced it a lot. The church of my youth was very... It formed me. I was a Roman Catholic. We were outside of Boston. And every week I heard the priest say, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. I never knew that was John. I never knew it was John chapter 1. I never knew it was John the Baptist pointing at the Lord Jesus Christ. And with all of this sprinkling of the blood, in, in the Old Testament, regarding uh, 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 altars and sacrifices, remember the, remember the law of the scapegoat? There's actually two scapegoats. And what happens with the scapegoat? The priest, the priest, Zadok, they put the hands upon the animals. And what, what's going on with that? It's the imputation of sin. The animals didn't sin, but the animals are depicted as, as the sacrificial lamb, Christ. We sinned. The sin is imputed to him. One, one animal dies. And where does the other one go? Out into the wilderness. Our text tells us that part of the sacrifices were carried outside of the city. It's the notion of God will separate our sin from us in him. What does the psalmist say? As far as the east is from the west. So for us, I don't know if this ever happens to you. It happens to me on a regular basis. I'll remember some gross sin that I've thought, said, or done. And it's exceedingly depressing. And you think... How in the world could Jesus even let me into heaven? Well, he doesn't see you in your gross sin as a Christian anymore. He sends it away into the wilderness. He separates you as far as the east is from the west. And then he says, there'll be salt being put onto these sacrificial animals. In the business of salt, it's it's chronicles or kings. It'll come to me at two o'clock in the morning. The covenant of grace is referred to as the covenant of salt. And the covenant of grace is the gospel of grace. And what does Saul teach? It's pure. It can't be corrupted. And then God has this, this whole consecration period for seven days. And the whole, nation, the whole notion is the completeness of the work. And who is the one who says, Father, I've completed the work. I've done the work. Glorify thee, me, Father, as I tried to glorify you. All of it 
is depicting the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's why the glory of God. That's why. And at the very end, God says, and it's just an amazing thing to me. God looks at you. He looks at me in Christ because of Christ and says, I will accept you. I will accept you. Sometimes we sin against another human being. They never accept us. Never. Never. There are things that I've said and done that I can never take back. And people remember them. I'm guilty. And they never will accept me. But God will. In Christ. Not a license to sin. But it's a license to love God and to walk humbly before other human beings. Amen. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word. <clears throat>